morning, everyone. We are in the book of John, and the book of John centers around this wonderful idea that Jesus the Messiah is the overcoming God King. Jesus the Messiah is the overcoming God King, is the general theme of the book of John. And last week, we saw John 3.16 come to life yet again in our lives, and I want to let you know that even though we've already gone through John 3.16, one of those great verses known not just in the book of John, but at every football and baseball game you can imagine, they hold up signs about John 3.16. I want to let you know, even though we've already gone through that last week, this is still going to be a good week. And in fact, every week after, it's still going to be a good week in Scripture because the book of John unpacks that beautiful, wonderful idea of God's goodness and love through Christ and Christ displaying for all of us to see he is the overcoming God King and there is no one like him. And he deserves our worship and praise. He deserves our full faith and trust and confidence. He deserves our all in all. So even though we've gone through what might be one of the best verses in the book of John, I guarantee you what we're going to go through today is going to apply that verse in our lives. And we're going to be talking about in our very next section in John chapter 3, the idea of pride and jealousy and how Christ the King overcomes all of that, even in our lives today. In the very first section of John chapter 3, verse 22 through, uh, I guess 24 is a great section, we talk about baptism. And if you remember, already in the book of John, we've had John the Baptist on full display. And he has more role in the book of John, but today we're going to see it yet again. He and his disciples are still actively baptizing near the Jordan River. So let me read those few verses, and then we'll talk about them. After this, that is after Jesus' discussion with Nicodemus, after he had his time in the temple where he got rid of false worship and uh, <laughs> the false placement of traditions, the story continues. So right after these moments, it says, Jesus and his disciples, which at this time were six, six men that had followed him, went to the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John was also baptizing at Anan near Salem, because the water was plentiful there. In fact, that area, which is near the Jordan River, has lots of hot springs and lots of lakes and lots of little side streams and rivers. So it was a place known to kind of go and relax if you wanted to be near the water. Not too far from there was the Jordan River, but these were nice little quiet pools of water that were um, not just for livestock, but for relaxation. So a lot of people from Jerusalem would come down the mountain of Jerusalem into this valley area and just enjoy the beauty of God's creation surrounded by the water. And so John was baptizing there because the water was plentiful there. And people were coming and being baptized for John had not yet been put into prison. A little bit of a spoiler. John eventually is going to get imprisoned for what he's doing. And bigger spoiler, they cut off his head and serve it on a platter. I hope that wasn't too big of a spoiler. When we get there, we're going to get there. But John, the apostle who was writing this, lets everyone know, hey, this is some of the time frame. You already know the story of John the Baptist. 
the people that John the Apostle is writing to, but he reminds us, hey, this has still been going on before John the Baptist was arrested and eventually beheaded. And we see two things happening here. We see two groups of people baptizing. We see Jesus and his disciples, and we're told in chapter 4, just the very next chapter, that it wasn't Jesus who was baptizing, but it was his disciples, just so we would understand that. And I'm going to read chapter 4, verse 1 and 2 real quick. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples... So we know that it wasn't Jesus doing the baptizing, but his disciples were baptizing people. They were baptizing them in Christ's name. They weren't doing John's baptism of just simply repentance, but they were doing a baptism that Christ himself endorsed and was present for, but Jesus was not doing the baptizing. And I'm going to get to a reason why I think Jesus was not doing any of the baptizing. But at the same time, in the same general location because it was close to Jerusalem, the Passover was over, and people were leaving Jerusalem and going into the countryside, John the Baptist also set up his place where he was doing baptisms, and he was doing the same type of baptism that he performed on Jesus himself. Just that idea that there needed to be repentance, that Jesus had then been anointed, but Jesus himself was not doing the baptisms. There were two separate locations near each other where baptisms were taking place, and I believe the reason why Scripture tells us Jesus was not doing the baptizing is because of the human heart of jealousy, pride, and envy. Because I'm telling you, if Jesus had baptized me, I'd be wearing a big old sticker that said, I'm really special because John the Baptist didn't do it. One of the disciples didn't do it. Jesus himself baptized me. And I can imagine there would be another denomination springing forth from that saying, we're the ones who received baptism directly from Jesus and giving it now to others. And I imagine that would cause a huge human heart problem of division. And in fact, Paul has to address that very thing in 1 Corinthians where he says, hey, there's a lot of division among you, and I'm super glad that I didn't baptize a lot of you. But some of you are saying, I'm from Paul, I'm from Apollos, I'm from so-and-so, I'm from so-and-so. And that division of human making can have no place in a thriving church of God. And so that may not be the reason why Jesus decided not to do any baptizing. I may be reading into that, but I think it's a pretty good illustration of we would take it and make an advantage over it that Jesus himself baptized me, and I'm one of the special ones. Everyone in the faith is special to God. Everyone is adopted into his kingdom as a full son and daughter in his kingdom with every right and privilege and honor and duty and responsibility that every son and daughter has in the kingdom. No one is more special than anyone except one. There is one who is immensely special. And we're going to see this happening in the next set of verses. But baptisms were taking place. Conversions were taking place. There was ministry taking place. But it was happening at two different locations, yet they were near to each other. Can you imagine what may happen next? Two different churches set up. One church over there attracting certain people. Another church over there attracting other people. What do you think might happen 
with some of the people from either church. I'll tell you what may happen. Our church is better. I mean, come on. John the Baptist and what he's been doing. He's been doing it for years now. Guy's a little crazy, dresses strange, but wow, he can draw a huge group of people. And then he got this new church over there. Yeah, Jesus, he's really special. Everyone, you know, applauds him. He's a rabbi. He's got a couple followers. He's got six disciples. But it's starting to grow a little bit. And that's exactly what starts to happen in the story. The next set of verses demonstrates a deep running pride and envy because two ministries are becoming successful and they're noticed and they're recognized. And one ministry gets a little concerned. Verse 25. Now a discussion arose between some of, some of John the Baptist's disciples and a Jew over purification. Now we've seen purification come up once before at the wedding of Canaan where Jesus says all of these traditions of washings and, and human rules of uh, tradition have no value to bring you closer to God. Zero value in bringing you near to God in relationship. So this idea of purifications has been kind of around the entire time of Jesus' public ministry. But now some of John the Baptist's disciples, who have been there for a long time, and a Jew comes around saying, we, we got to talk about this purification thing. Because I imagine in their mind, they're looking at Jesus and his disciples having effectiveness with evangelism and baptisms, and they're trying to find where they're different and why they're wrong. And the idea of purification comes up, that Jesus is not following the traditions that all the rabbis and synagogues and temple leaders have set as a burden upon the people. Jesus does not follow that traditional burden of obedience of the law. He follows a heart obedience to the law, and he does it perfectly, but adding things to God's law is never good or right. And we've already seen that, so I don't want to belabor that point. But there's a discussion now. And so this discussion leads in verse 26 that they come to John, John the Baptist, and they said, Rabbi, and I'm going to put a little inflection in my voice because I think it gets the point across here. Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing, and all of them are going to him. I know exactly the tone of their voice. They were whining and complaining that the new church was starting to get a lot of followers. And this guy, you were the one who baptized him, and now, oh, they're all going to him. And all the chairs that we bought, no one's sitting in them, and we have extra donuts left over, and, and no one's using all the coffee, and what, what are we going to do about him? I can imagine that's exactly how they feel. They are frustrated that they have been with John, and John has the original message of repent and come to the kingdom of God, and this new guy, who, yeah, we know he's kind of important, and he said he's the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, the overcoming God king, and that has a lot of significance. But what has happened, John, since you told people that, they're now going to him. 
They are whining, they are complaining, they are frustrated, and at the heart of it is pride. At the heart of it is they are losing influence. At the heart of it, they're dwindling. They're becoming insignificant. They're no longer important. They're no longer drawing the crowds that they once had. They no longer were recognized. Oh, you're, you're with that wilderness guy, aren't you? Yeah, I am. I'm one of John the Baptist's disciples. And now, that doesn't mean anything. No one's caring about that. And they are upset. They are frustrated. You see, pride... Whatever kind of pride you may have, whether it's envy or jealousy, which connected to pride, that pride is divisive and destructive. It's divisive and destructive. It's divisive because it pits you against another person. And it is destructive because it just simply tears one another down. And the mature Christian response to one ministry used to be successful and now another ministry is should not be pointing fingers at that new ministry saying something's wrong there we don't like it we want it the way it used to be but now it's new and I don't like that instead it should be celebrating God's goodness and grace afresh and anew in another way in which brings God's kingdom to light now, we're talking in terms of, hey, everybody has the same belief system and theology, and that new church isn't talking new doctrine just to, to lead people in error. We're talking about a church that is describing and declaring the goodness and greatness of God across the board. So there isn't a doctrinal deviation or there isn't a moral deviation with that ministry, but they're both pronouncing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the Messiah, the overcoming God King, and calling you to repentance and faith, not relying upon tradition, it doesn't matter. In fact, it's a moment of praise and glory and thanksgiving that another church has risen up declaring God's goodness and people are listening to it and hearing it and praising God for what is happening in their lives. We should be joyful that another church in our town has to have a building campaign because they've outgrown the one they've had because they're reaching the lost for Christ. It should be a joy to see that. It should be an excitement to see that. It should be satisfying. But when you start looking, it's me against them. Here enters pride. Here enters jealousy. Here enters envy. And just like John the Baptist's disciples, whined and complained to John. John responds, absolutely, spot on, perfect. He says in verse 27 through 30, John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. Notice how he starts really correcting and disciplining his disciples. He starts out by saying, the goodness that you see is not through an evil invention or manipulation by Jesus and his disciples. It's from the hand of God. And anything you ever learn 
should be. If God's hand is in it, you better not try to resist it. Because the harder you resist God's moving and God's blessing, I guarantee you, you're going to be on the losing end of it. You may be able to strong arm other people. You may be able to manipulate other people. But when you start trying to manipulate God and say, that's not fair to what you're doing over there or over here, oh, it puts you at odds with God. And you do not want to be at odds with God. You want to be on his side. You want to have his favor. You want to have his blessing. You want to have joy in his actions. There was no joy in the disciples of John the Baptist in seeing the gospel moving forward. There was confusion and there was hatred. There was envy and there was strife. At seeing God bless. At seeing God's kingdom grow. And so John reminds him at the very beginning... You need to fight this temptation of pride and envy, and it starts with knowing and being confident that when God sheds his goodness upon something, it's a moment of rejoicing because you do not want to be resisting God's joyful outpouring of his blessing. You want to be excited about it, accepting of it, and joyful that he is moving and extending his kingdom and it may not be with you. It may be with someone else. And that's more than just okay. It's a moment of joy that God is expanding his kingdom. So John starts at the very beginning. You want to complain against God moving? You want to complain about God's acting and his kingdom growing in a different way than what you're expecting? You better realize it's from his hand. It's from his hand of beauty and plenty. It is given to him from heaven. Then he goes into a comment, a statement in verse 28, which he's already said. And he says, you yourselves, he's talking to his disciples, those that are whining and complaining that Jesus is getting more people to follow him than John the Baptist is. He says, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. Now that may seem like a very obvious question or a very obvious statement that John is addressing to his disciples, but he wants to remind them, I'm not the one. I'm not the king. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the promised one. I'm not the one who's going to bring you near to God. I am not your redeemer. I'm not going to go to the cross for you. I'm not shedding my blood on your behalf. I'm not important. Someone else is. And you know who it is. I've already pointed you to him. Wow, John, he is blessed by God for his ministry and his closeness to the Father. But this man is humble. This man has the right perspective of the grandness and greatness of the kingdom of God. It is not about him. That goes against everything that we've kind of instilled in ourselves and our culture. And it's not just America. But we want to be the best. We want to be number one. We celebrate the best. We celebrate number one. We celebrate the greats. We don't really celebrate second place, 
third place. Or, hey, at least you finished. No, we celebrate. Number one. And here's John the Baptist saying, we're going to celebrate number one, and it's never going to be me. It's never going to be me. And here's some harsh truth and reality. It's never going to be you. You're not number one in God's kingdom. You're not number one in God's plan of redemption. You're not number one. You're not the king. You're not the Lord. You're not the Messiah. You're not God's gift to the church. You're a child of the king, but you're still a servant and a slave to the king of kings and the Lord of lords. It is never all about you. And John tells him that. You yourselves bear witness that I said I'm not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. And then he gives us a beautiful illustration of what that looks like, and we may be able to relate to that. So he gives a story that we can relate to, or an illustration that we can relate to. In verse 29 and 30, he says, But the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, his joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. John the Baptist says, it's just like a wedding. Who are the people that are celebrated at the wedding? The bride and bridegroom. Not the best man. Not the maid of honor or matron of honor. Not all the other people. Not the musicians. Not the photographer. Not the caterers. None of those people are celebrated. What's celebrated is the bride and bridegroom. And John says, I'm like the best man. It's not about me. It's about Christ. It's about this relationship that Christ has with the body of Christ, the church, the bridegroom. That's who we celebrate. And then he says in that ending verse, it's now about time. I have run the course and fulfilled God's obligation, and now the attention is not on me anymore. He must have all the attention. You must now follow him as your leader, as your hope, as your confidence, as the one who describes the Christian faith. Me? I got to decrease. I got to become smaller and smaller and smaller until no one wants to follow me, until no one says, John the Baptist said, until no one knows where I'm going to be next weekend because they're following the bridegroom, the one who's important here. You're following the king. In 1 Corinthians, and I alluded to this a second ago about division in the church being based on who baptized who, and so forth. But later on in that same chapter, chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, from verse 26 to uh, the end of the chapter, let me read that. You don't have to turn there. I've got this. For consider your calling, brothers. 
Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards, and not many are powerful, and not many are of noble birth. Paul, you, you really know how to really build up an audience because he's basically saying the same thing that John says. You're, you're not really all that. You're not God's gift to the world. I remember, I remember a, a, a time where my grandmother, when my father died, we lived with my grandma, and my grandma had a great influence on me, a great godly influence on me. And I remember one day after school, I don't even know what happened, but I know I did something, and I got in trouble, and whatever it might have been. She sits me down before my mom gets home from work, and um, I remember her telling me, and it just, there's a lot of things my grandmother taught me and told me, but this is one thing that I actually remember the moment of. And she goes, Tim, I know you're going through a lot, um, and I know that there, there's a lot of struggle going on, but you need to remember that the world does not revolve around you and your problems. I'm like, yeah. I said, yeah, it, it kind of does. I mean, doesn't everybody think of me? Doesn't everybody want to know what's going on in my life? Doesn't everyone want to know my opinion? Doesn't everyone want to know my hurts? She goes, no. No. Your family does. But even that, you don't, you're not the center of the world, the center of attention. It's exactly what John was saying. I'm not the center of the world. I'm not the center of attention. And nothing destroys pride more than I'm not the gift that in my mind I've convinced myself everyone needs. No. You do not need me. My single role as pastor at Calvary, is to point you away from me to Christ. And I use my own unique ways, my own stories, my own personalities. Yeah, that happens uniquely. But it should never be, it's all about Tim. Or any of it is about Tim. It should be, the guy points me to Christ. He elevates the person of Jesus. He elevates the stories of Jesus. He elevates the miracle working of Jesus. He elevates the power of the gospel in my life to where I can get up the next day and go, God, how do I serve you? And if there comes a point in time in 50 years you forget my name, praise God if you're closer to him. Because the glory of my name is nothing compared to the glory of Christ's name. In fact, there's no glory in my name. It's all in Christ. And so Paul says, hey, you guys, you're, you're just like normal people. Nothing super special about you, even though you might say, I'm a little bit more special than some other people here. In Christ, we are all uniquely valuable before God because he spilt his son's blood on our behalf. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. All of us he loved. In that same, I don't know how I got derailed from 1 Corinthians, but we're still in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27, and I'll read those verses quickly to connect pride and arrogance, envy and jealousy and wanting to make a name for yourself above Christ. Paul says, but God chose what is foolish in the world 
to shame the wise. Do you know who the foolish people are in this text? Just give you a clue. It's us. It's us. God chose what is weak in the world. You know who the weak ones in the world in this text are? Me. And you. And all of those who have come to the name of Jesus Christ in faith and trust. And God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might be able to boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, Jeremiah 29, or Jeremiah 9, 24, excuse me, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. John the Baptist knew when his disciples started whining and complaining that you're losing influence and power in the people, John the Baptist knew, then this is a good thing because I'm losing it to the right person, to Christ. The attention is off me and it's now on him because John the Baptist knew there was no redemption in his name. There was no redemption in John the Baptist's name. There's no redemption in my name. There's no redemption in the name Calvary Church. There's redemption only in Christ. And Paul says, this is, I, I have to point you here, that all of this is about following the king, not following a person, not following a group, not following a denomination, but following Christ. That is our calling, is to follow the king. Amen? Amen. Uh, that wasn't the end, though. Sometimes I do that at the end, but that was, that was just a punctuated point of amen. Back to John chapter 3. Verse 31 through verse 36 is a powerful statement from John the Apostle making some commentary on what's happening here. I don't think John the Baptist is speaking this. And if John the Baptist was speaking this, then praise God, it's still absolutely true and right. But I think this is John the Apostle putting some context to what's happening here. And he makes some unbelievably brilliant, great comments about who Christ is that I think all led to John the Baptist being humble and pointing others to follow the king. You see, if John the Baptist kept all the attention on him, it's about me, 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 me. How many people would be saved through John the Baptist? Zero. No one is saved through John the Baptist. People are only saved, redeemed, justified, sanctified, and righteous before God through Christ. So John knew exactly what the people needed. Not a charismatic follower in John the Baptist, but a capable king who could take on the sins of the world and destroy it. And so these are these ultimate beautiful statements. And as much as we may love John 3.16, I would encourage you every time you think of John 3.16 and you can memorize it, you say, oh, I remember there was a pastor, Tim. He said, when I get to John 3.16 and I get excited about that verse, I need to follow up in the rest of John chapter 3 and read from verse 31 through the end of the chapter.
because you are going to expand how great Jesus is in these thoughts. Verse 31, he who comes from above is above all. <laughs> Beautiful statement. He who comes from above is above all. There is no one greater than Jesus Christ. He is above all because he created all, sustains all, manages all, rules all, has dominion over all. He is the all in all. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in earthly ways. He who comes from heaven is above all. It doesn't matter how glorious John the Baptist or Pastor Tim may be. He's of the earth. He is of flesh and bone. He was born with a sinful nature that is bent towards sin until Christ redeems him and sets him as a vessel of honor upon his table. But the one who needs no fixing is Jesus Christ. We all need fixing. So who is greater? Who is the one to follow? Who is the one to emulate? Who is the one to praise? The one who needs no fixing? Who's perfect? Or the one who's been fixed? The one who's been repaired. The one who's been made live again. Would you not want to follow the one who's had life in him from the very beginning? Absolutely. Follow the king. Not man, not movement, but Jesus, the king. We're just from the earth, made of flesh and bone, going to die unless the Lord returns. Verse 32, he bears witness. This is the one from heaven above all and all, above everyone. He bears witness that he has been seen and heard, yet no one received his testimony. We saw in chapter 1 that there's a lot of people who see Christ and hear that message, but they love darkness more, and so they deny Christ. Even though his message brings life and brings peace and joy before God, they reject it because it's not of this world. It doesn't elevate them. It doesn't give you a moment of boasting. When you submit to Christ in all of your ways, you get rid of the boasting. You get rid of, it's all about me. Look at how great I am. Isn't the world blessed to have me? No. The world is blessed to have Christ. And if he was the only blessing the world have, it'd be worth an eternity of praise. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. But whoever does receive his testimony, verse 33, he sets his seal to this. That God is true. He puts his mark and stamp that you are his. There is a beautiful moment in Disney Pixar's Toy Story where Woody points to the bottom of his foot and it says, Andy. And there's a moment of tearing and a moment of connection there in that story emotionally. God doesn't simply write his name upon your foot of ownership. He takes everything that is broken about you and he puts him into you. 
He puts his spirit into you. It's not just a name scratched on you. He's invested his son's life in you. What is that worth? Is that worth giving up pride that you're special, that you're necessary? Absolutely it's worth giving that up. And if God can use us to point others to follow the king, then that is accomplishment enough. You are his, not a name scratched, but a life given. A life given and there's nothing you can give in return that's worth it. He continues in verse 34, for he whom God has sent, that is Christ, utters the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. God is not stingy in his relationship with you. And through Christ, you can have the fullness of heaven. You can have the fullness of his blessing, the fullness of his grace, the fullness of his forgiveness, the fullness of his mercy, the fullness of who he is in you. He's not stingy with giving out a relationship. It's hard for us to understand. I realize that. It's hard for us to really believe because every relationship we have in this world is bound to give and take. It's bound to, as long as you satisfy me, I'll be your friend. Now, there's some exceptions to that, but by and large, it's because we have a commonality that we say, yeah, we're in this together. Not so with the Father's relationship with you. The Father's relationship with you is without measure or limit. He gives you all of who Christ is to make you right and to live before him. And then verse 35 and 36. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. So whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life but the wrath of God remains on him. Paul says in the book of Philippians, and I'm only going to mention this real quickly in passing, that we need to have the same mind that Christ had. And Christ came, and the world was all about him, but he said, listen, even though the world is all about me, and I've made the world through my work and my words, I'm still going to shift the focus from me to the Father. And I'm going to be born humble means. And I'm not going to take it for granted that I am equal with the Father, but I'm going to point you to the Father's love. And so Christ humbled himself and became a servant to us. It should be the other way around. I'm a servant to him. But he's showing us by example how to deal with pride and envy and jealousy and the sense that this is all about me and my needs need to be met and acknowledged by you. Christ said, hey, all of my needs and all of this, it's all about me, me, me. I want to advance myself to be number one. None of that matters. Because even Christ did not advance himself. And he had every right to. He advanced the Father to show us the Father's love, to show us the mother, Father's mercy, to show us the Father's forgiveness. Even Christ, when the intention was pointed at him in his life, 
said, but look to the Father. Look to the one who gives us the grace and mercy. And yes, there is a day, and that day is coming, and the day may be soon when Christ returns as the King of kings and Lord of lords, riding on a horse of judgment where all the world would confess he is the Messiah, the overcoming God King. But while he was here, he pointed people to the Father. Who are you going to point people to? You're going to point people to yourself? It's all about me, 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 my opinion, my advice, my ability, my giftedness, my specialness to the world, to the church? Or are we going to point people to God the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ, like John the Baptist? That is an everyday decision you have to make. Because pride, envy, and jealousy, it's all about me being number one, creeps up every day. So you've got to be armed to come against that, like John the Baptist was, and be willing to decrease and him increase. Let's pray. Father, those are such sweet words but also challenging words. Help us, Father, this day to live in a way that elevates you and makes you the object of everyone. Get rid of our pride and arrogance and self-importance that this life is about me being number one and help us to make you number one in all of our thoughts and all of our actions. And praise you, Father, for expanding your kingdom, not just in this single local church, but around the world. Your name is being praised today among your people. And all of God's children said, Amen.